Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello, welcome to Ivory Sea Trouble. This week it's Daily Wallace and Quinn again in the European <laughs> Parliament in Brussels. And we've got Qu- Qu- Quinn has taken over the place. I'm I think. DC so what, yeah. We'll, we'll all be Musical orders. chairs. We'll all be taking yeah. orders from her so Yeah. Yeah, well, we've got a lot to talk about this week. It's been busy in the European Parliament as we're kind of getting close to Christmas. Lots of things happening. Um, So we've got a few topics we're going to go through. We're going to talk, first of all, about Article 44, uh, which is kind of joint missions that the EU countries can do, joint military missions under the Lisbon Treaty, right? So that came up. Yeah. Sort of, like sort we had of. said, we've heard like Junkers refer to PESCO as the sleeping beauty of the of the Lisbon Treaty, meaning it could be awoken at a future stage. But yeah, we would definitely say Article 44 is another sleeping beauty, which has never been tried before, but it basically is a mechanism for allowing two member states to engage in a mission um, on behalf of the union, but basically they would run and organise it themselves. And sponsored by... And everybody the else country. gives them the green light and the two boys go ahead. Sponsored by the taxpayers of Europe. Yeah. yeah. And so what you could have is uh, you could have France and Germany uh, heading off on a mission, uh, which they kind of admitted to us this week. Uh, a mission doesn't start out as going to war, but um, like the Sahel, it could end up like a war. I mean, there's a mission going on in the Sahel where there's Irish troops involved. And if you think there's not a war there, well... Uh, there's 20,000 plus troops from Europe and they're carrying guns and they're firing at people that they um, are called jihadists and they're engaged in what's called counter-terrorism activity. It's not a peacekeeping mission and the Irish shouldn't be down there. But that started off as a mission, but it's actually a, a form of war now. So what we're talking about here, about this procedure and facility, it has the potential to be a case of someone like France and Germany or others going to war and uh, every taxpayer across Europe paying for it. Mm. I thought the interesting thing about it is is that this is definitely being discussed at the higher echelons of the European establishment with a view to seeing how it can be triggered. So the guest speaker that we had in um, was from some NATO... NATO, NATO College. Yeah, NATO College he was yeah, from. He was Dr Tardy. Yeah, so he's considered to be the expert on this clause and his conclusion was, look it, we don't have all the answers. The clause is worded a little bit vaguely and the only way we're going to find out is if we implement it and sure try. And one of the big discussions was about, well, do you need unanimity? Because there's been some discussion on this and this is obviously very relevant for Ireland being a supposedly neutral country. <coughs> 
And the bottom line is that basically they say, yes, you do need unanimity. So you do need everybody on board. But they have this little typical EU cop out called constructive abstentionism, which means basically you can kind of allow it go ahead, but your hands are not dirty by touching it. They're dirty by association, but nobody has to know. So that there was a possibility of a country, maybe like Ireland, saying, well, okay, you do it, but um, we're not going to stop you doing it. But we're not going to go row in behind it. But that actually is facilitating it going ahead because it's not blocking it by voting against it. And Total cop out. There wasn't any clarity. There wasn't any clarity uh, as to whether if you uh, went for constructive abstention, it meant that you weren't adding yourself to the ticket. You weren't approving of this mission or war, or whatever it turns out to be. But it didn't mean that you weren't going to pay. Yeah, he was, was really vague it, on it that point. It wasn't certain mm. uh, as to whether uh, the taxpayers of Ireland would actually be paying for it. Well, it was um, certainly very clear that absolutely the costs of the mission would not just be borne by the two participants. The costs are going to be borne by everybody. But then there was a little bit of vagueness. Was Does that everybody include just the ones who voted yes for it or what, but that the running of the operation was down to the two member states. And when you have the likes of France and, you know, some of these other sort of war hungry types, they only need one other going along with them. And you could see this becoming a reality very, very quickly. And they're kind of slobbering at the mouth at the prospect of this. So all the talk was that this is the mechanism that they're looking at in order to get around the fact that they would say that Europe isn't responding militarily enough. So they have a big problem. They think, oh, look, some member states now are, you know, more behind NATO. You know, some of them are buying American military equipment and so on. Uh, It's shown that there's been a fragmentation across Europe and this is about winning them back, they kept saying, getting some of the members that we can have an effective military and security response. And if we do this, then maybe that'll inspire some of the ones on the periphery who are giving out about Europe's defence policy to come back into the fold, but either way, the defence industry is winning. Yeah, but there's for people that uh, are really interested in this topic and would like to delve a bit deeper into it, right? The European Council on Foreign Relations, right, which is a body of the European Union, uh, published a paper this year only and is really interesting, right? Because it deals with uh, that element of neutrality and the countries that kind of like to think of themselves as being neutral, but how much are they on the hook to all this increase in militarization, and how much will they be on the hook uh, if somebody goes to on this on a mission or war in their name? Uh, and the the uh, the document is actually very good. It's very I mean, given that it's coming from the, the EU uh, side, uh, it's really interesting, and it looks at, for example. Finland and Sweden are considered non-aligned. Denmark got an opt-out option when they when they went they had a vote uh, after I think it was the Lisbon Treaty, and because the Lisbon Treaty uh, was tying members in to something that they hadn't been tied into before from a military point of view, and then you have uh, the so-called uh, strategic. Uh, neutral, strategically neutral countries, Austria, Ireland and Malta. And the paper kind of deals with, well, how, how much are these guys tied in and what's really going on? Because the reason why there's so much talk uh, going on about all this at the moment, and 
you're going to hear an awful lot more about in the new year because we've, we're really being teed up at the Security and Defence Committee for a headlong dive into strategic autonomy, the strategic compass uh, in the new year. And what is that about? Well, it's a lot to do with Europe becoming more uh, stronger and more capable to deal with a crisis that it would like to react to without the help of the Americans. And that requires a lot of more money that the Europeans are going to have to spend. And how much will countries like Ireland be tied into it then is up for debate. But the paper, this paper I was telling you about from the European Council on Foreign Relations, it touches on Article 42.7 of the Lisbon Treaty, which obliges EU countries to aid a fellow member state that becomes the victim of armed aggression on its territory, on its territory by all means in their power, which means obviously uh, going to war. And this formulation is reminiscent of uh, a well-known Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, which calls on NATO member states to assist a party being attached by taking all action necessary, including the use of armed force in the case of anybody being attacked. So, does Article 42.7 of the Lisbon Treaty mean that in the case of uh, the EU taking up a military position against anybody, uh, does it mean that Ireland uh, actually has to get involved as well or has to uh, pay towards the cost of it? And these questions are not answered. And But next year, I think we'll learn more about it. But uh, we, we would be very concerned that Ireland has signed up to something with the Lisbon Treaty that they're not really admitting to, that they are going to be more, uh, com- I'd say, f- almost obliged to apply themselves uh, militarily, but definitely financially uh, to future missions. Yeah, I mean, I think all these opt-outs and opt-ins that the Irish people were told we succeeded in getting when we had to vote the second time in Lisbon. And obviously one of the key reasons why Lisbon was rejected by the population was fears that it compromised their neutrality. So they went back and got these few little sops put in but they're very much light on detail and light on impact because subsequent to that, we have been just barreling in the direction of increased militarism and Ireland is fully part of that. And they're being ingratiated into the club, if you like. I mean, there are six senior um, Defence Forces personnel based here in, in Brussels intermingling and dealing with um, the EU's Defence HQ as well. So they're being very much part of the team. And when they've come before us in the committee, we're told, oh, no, 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 there's no problem with Irish committee. Irish neutrality hasn't stopped the lads doing anything. They've been grand, you know, which wasn't really the question we were asking. It was the opposite answer, but we knew that anyway. Um, but this kind of thing, so they're being ingratiated. I mean, we've made the point about the strategic compass a whole lot that actually 
European countries do not have a common interest. So it's supposed to be that we all have faced common threats and have common security concerns. But of course, we don't, because a load of the ones on the eastern helm have very different reasons. Some of them want to be firmly keep the US bases which exist in Europe. They want them kept there. They want to align themselves with Europe, uh, with NATO. Others want very much the development of an EU army and they're more gone ho in that. Then you have the ones in Ireland sitting in the middle kind of going, don't know what's going on, but don't really want to upset anyone else. So I'll just trundle along. But I mean, the Irish taxpayer is paying for that. So we're already involved in loads of projects. And yeah. And, and before um, people start throwing stones at us, uh, after, I mean, obviously the Irish people had to vote twice on Lisbon, right? And in order to placate the Irish, um, and, and to get him to vote for Lisbon the second time round, there was a clause put into uh, Article uh, 42.7 of the Lisbon Treaty which said, this shall not prejudice the specific character of the security and defence policy of certain member states, meaning obviously that Ireland could be one of them. But in actual fact, that's a very soft line, as Claire said, and... Uh, it doesn't ha- carry anything like the same weight as the, as the main article itself. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But you see, they and they say like security. They don't say military like. So it's all it's a kind of a you know they say a hybrid threat and this kind of thing. They don't say oh this is armed conflict. But it's all uh, a misuse of language to try and dumb down the impact, to sanitise what's actually happening here, which is that huge chunks of the European budget now are winning their way through military expenditure, through dual-use military expenditure. And that Ireland is bang in the middle of that and not only is part of it, but certainly isn't even stopping it as well. Because actually, if you were a positively neutral country playing a role on the world stage, even as a non-aligned neutral country, you could have an incredibly positive impact on EU policy by promoting a a policy of of peace and a move away from militarism and a diversion of all of those billions that we waste on militarism into the health service, into the um, housing projects and so on across Europe, because we're not the only ones with problems in these areas. And while it hasn't changed yet, uh, at the moment, uh, most of these decisions uh, still require unanimity. That means that every 27 member state has to agree or it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Now, they're trying to change that. And the Germans, for example, and the French are looking for majority voting, which would be a disaster because all those East European countries uh, are as gung-ho as hell about NATO and military activity. And they're, they're mad, right? And uh, if there was majority voting, it would be a piece of cake for them to get to war. But when we put it to your man the other day, that, you know, well, I mean, you're talking about going to war, like, I mean, and, and you're looking for a more rapid... Uh, decision-making process so you can go to war quicker. I said, well, I mean, traditionally I said uh, the idea of going to war was considered something, surely something of last resort. And I said, the idea that it would take time before you could actually make a decision of last resort, that uh, time for reflection would be good. But I said, you're actually now wanting to cut out that period of reflection and just, oh, let's go to war and 
get everyone else to row in behind you straight away and sure if there's any if there's anyone that doesn't really like the idea well sure you can always uh, engage in constructive abstention this is scary stuff yeah mm-hmm. it was very much like you know well we have to see we have to trigger this let's see where are we going to trigger this you know a bit of an unfortunate word when he was trying to downplay the military aspect but there's no question but that the way in which the debate was managed is that this is something <sighs> that is going to become real if you like because it flows from a frustration of the fact that they haven't been able to engage enough in that type of activity or in enough of a coordinated way because they can't get everybody completely on side that this is a way around that to get action but around getting everyone on side like you know and when there was the fracas in Belarus recently where uh, Lukashenko who despite uh, what uh, some people in the Irish media tried to make out that we were supporters of we're, we're not remotely supporting them but uh, neither are we supporters of uh, EU interference but uh, Burrell his main reaction to the problems in Belarus and to Afghanistan where the Americans pulled out uh, all of a sudden without even telling them was, oh, we need a rapid reaction force, a minimum of 5,000 troops that just can go to action uh, overnight. Well, I mean, that's absolute nonsense, like. And your man admitted the other day, oh, no, this is not going to war. This is a mission. This is a, these are missions. But missions can actually evolve. Uh, like the mission in, Hassal, in, in the Sahel has evolved into a war. It's a war in the Sahel. And, but your man was admitting that, no, no, these are, we don't, we're not going to war, we're going on missions, but sometimes they can evolve into a kind of, what's something similar to a war situation. In other words, a war situation. But it's incredible how the peace movement has been sort of sidelined, you know, because one of the discussions, and you were saying about it being uh, scary, Mick, and one of the most offensive contributions I thought at the meeting was from the Green representative, the spokesperson for the Green Party in Germany, who was boasting at the fact that the new um, German government, which includes the Greens, has been, they've won a wonderful victory now, fantastic, whereby the head of foreign affairs, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, the Minister for Defence, the heads of the army and all these things were going to be women. Like, and I said back to, you know, the feminization of militarism isn't really society's great achievement. I think demilitarism and world peace would be a bit of a step forward, far better for all the women whose, you know, partners are going to be killed in the war, whose homes are going to be bombed or whatever. But it's amazing how that message doesn't get out of there. Like the military industrial complex has become sanitised and it's been creepingly involved into the civilian space. And that's a very deliberate thing. And it's also linked to this constant idea of threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, the accelerating Russiaphobia, anti-Chinese rhetoric is heating up because you can't have all this sort of, if you're defending yourself, you have to be defending yourself against someone or something like, you know. Yeah, and we made the point before at at a at a committee there a couple of months ago uh, when Afghanistan was very much in the news, and uh, people were boasting about the amount of women involved in military now with NATO and the US. But uh, we made the point that well, in actual fact, the Afghan families that uh, were killed by bombs from the airplanes or drones. Uh, weren't really concerned whether the the pilot was a man or a woman that destroyed their kids and their home uh, or who was pushing the button to, to detonate the drone. Uh, 
doesn't really matter an awful yeah. lot whether it's a man or a woman. I mean, there's no doubt. This is the this is very serious, and it's not being covered accurately. And I think we saw that during the week with the the statistics that came out saying that uh, the EU has engaged in a record amount of of military expenditure now, nearly two hundred billion, um, which is huge, phenomenal. Um, but in some ways, some of it wasn't done in an integrated way. So while collectively they spent more than ever before, a lot of them were hairing off in their own direction. And it's precisely because of this type of different emphasis that they're trying to marshal everybody around the strategic compass and that. And yeah. then we uh, noticed how that was portrayed in Irish media as well, just as a quick aside. Yeah, in well, RT. yeah uh, well, you go ahead well. now, that you've seen it. <laughs> Well, it was very notable because it, I suppose the big story that came out of it was that EU defence spending had increased overall, whereas RTE decided to focus on this specific question of collective defence spending and the fact that it had gone down. So it was almost this headline getting all up in arms about the mm. lack of EU defence spending over the mm. last year when that's an actual complete opposition to what really happened. Yeah, I, th- I think I saw there was something like EU uh, defence or EU concerned at slump in defence yeah. expenditure, you know, where in reality, like the uh, the uh, military companies were absolutely delighted. It was a bumper year for them. But yeah, those in the EU would like to see a lot more being spent on the collective stuff rather than the boys going all out in their own direction. But actually, if you were a serious media outlet, you'd be saying, Really, does humanity care whether it's been done under an EU umbrella or a member state umbrella? The fact of the matter is, is that 200 billion euros has been spent on militarism against the backdrop of a global pandemic, a health crisis, a housing crisis across member states. And I mean, on, on the subject of the, of the military profit, and I was very lucky to um, co-host a press webinar with one of our German colleagues in Linke, who had commissioned a report uh, called, and it's available if anybody wants a copy of it. It's available online on the left's website, but it's also available in hard copies, but on EU border regimes and the technologies that are used um, to uh, enforce it, which is really good. You see the people making the money and all the rest of it. And interestingly, one of the people involved in such uh, technologies for dealing with migrants on the borders was uh, our very own commissioner, Thierry Breton, when he was head of the Atos company, which has made a hell of a lot of money out of um, border security which is a bit scary and he's now France's commissioner in uh, that general field but that was a good event as well yeah. and if people want that they can have a look at that. Yeah and there's huge links it's it's mainly it's arms companies and that kind of uh, military technology companies that are g- making money out of these kind of huge gig like I mean we're talking drones we're talking about uh, heat sensors to detect people hiding in bushes or you know out in wherever in trucks uh, sensors uh, fingerprint technology the mass surveillance computer systems all of these just serve to kind of dehumanise people but they're big money and of course the technologies don't work half the time but it's never the companies that make them their fault it's the the victims at the end of it, the person whose fingerprint is mistaken or incorrectly entered, who pays the price for that. But it's a huge, huge money spinner. And it's all the same names, Talos, Airbus, all the big uh, Leonardo, big um, military companies and that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So very interesting report there. So we can put a link to that in the show notes and a link also to the essay that Mick was talking about, about the the Lisbon Treaty articles and militarism. Hmm, that'd be great. Um, yeah. yeah. So the next thing we were thinking of talking about was China. Um, as always, a big topic in the foreign affairs and security and defence committees in the parliament. I know 
Mick, they've proposed. There's a new report coming out. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a it seems to be kind of a giant effort between foreign affairs and security and defence. Uh, it was actually presented at security and defence uh, this week, uh, but it's actually called a foreign affairs report, and the rapporteur is David McAllister, who's the chair of the foreign affairs committee. He's um, big star in Irish radio. Oh yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I, yeah, RT like wheeling them out. Well, I mean, in fairness, um, he does speak beautifully. Yeah, maybe no, more beautifully his, than his, us. Um, his, his mother is German, I think, and his father is Scottish, and uh, he probably speaks English better than we do. Maybe that's the way. It's no maybe, problem maybe, about it. Maybe, <laughs> he definitely does. Is that why we're not on yeah, RT I don't know, on a regular I don't know. basis? No. We probably don't speak. My wife's for accent is probably letting me down. So. I was wondering what it was. Mm. And here was I thinking that it was my politics, mm. but it's actually probably my accent. But anyways, um, McAllister is doing... Um, a report on the EU and the security challenges in the Indo-Pacific. And I had a little bit of banter with with McAllister on this issue this week. And um, I was just, he, he was going, obviously, the, it's going to be a very interesting report. And um, I'm the shadow for the left group. So we'll, um, we'll be putting in loads of amendments to, what he, to the report that he's launched. And then we'll be arguing about them all. And eventually something will go before uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee for a vote and then to the plenary for a vote. Uh, but uh, this, it'll actually take, I think it's, it, it, this is actually going to run from from now until uh, April, I think. Uh, so there'll, there'll, there'll be a lot of work uh, going into it, but it'll be interesting. And China is, um, is obviously the probably the biggest... Um, Issue at the moment in foreign affairs in the European Parliament, uh, there seems to be an, a totally irrational obsession with it, and obviously uh, the uh, it's it's almost uh, a rash that the Irish Times seem to have caught as well, um, and people, I mean, there's an awful lot of anti-China rhetoric um, that borders on racism uh, at the moment, and. I mean, really, what's going on? It's a bit, it's a bit mad. And I pointed out at the committee this week that listen, there's the Americans are investing more in China at the moment than I'd say even in America. The American, there's American companies are investing to an incredible degree. There was, there was a company only announced about ten days ago. And they control $8 trillion of assets. And they've just announced that they're going to uh, invest uh, crazy money in China because they see it as a great area for investment. So what you have is you have huge increasing financial links between the Chinese and the Americans. So you have American business uh, up to their eyeballs in China. And the idea that the Chinese and the Americans will go to war doesn't really make much sense to anybody. And I don't think it'll happen myself. But unfortunately, you have an awful lot of anti-Chinese rhetoric, uh, not just in the media in Ireland, but in, in the European Union as well, and especially in the Parliament. And it doesn't make any sense. And it really only, it really only feeds the military-industrial complex, because they're the only ones going to make money out of it. Everyone is under pressure to increase their military spend to deal with uh, 
the increasing threat of China. It used to be just Russia, but now there's the two of them. So all the more reason why do we, we need to spend a lot more again. But there isn't any sense to this. And what people at home need to realise is that they'll be paying for it. The citizens of Europe will be paying for all increased military spend in Europe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fall off the trees. It comes out of their pocket eventually. Their services will be undermined in order to pay for this. This is mad stuff. You know, I know what you're saying about that. You don't think there's going to be a war between the US and China. And I don't think there's going to be one in the short term either. But I do think that we're barreling down to a very dangerous uh, territory and the rhetoric that's been ratcheted up um, in these areas can turn dirty and result in, in flashpoints and that, you know. Um, I think it's it's deeply concerning and the EU is in the middle of it, stirring it up there, you know, for its own purposes, which is not helpful either. Yeah, no, I mean, the idea of a flashpoint, I, know, I, I take your point, and history has shown that even sometimes when countries had no intention of going yeah. to war, it happened almost by mistake. And I mean, a great example, uh, I spent uh, a whole year in UCD on a particular course called August 1914. And it, and it, it was the, the documentation that went from one side to the other uh, when there was a threat of Germany going to war uh, with France and England. And it's, it's an incredible study if you look at all uh, the correspondence between the two sides. And it literally... It just started to build up. And then all of a sudden, uh, Prince Ferdinand gets killed in in uh, Sarajevo. Hmm. And uh, flashpoint, match, away it goes. And it's actually, the period we're in now is actually much more similar to the period in the run-up to World War One than World War Two. I mean, the European Union might like to present the current global debate as one of democracy versus authoritarianism, you know, to try and capture that democracy versus fascism sort of stuff. But actually, it's much more like the type of um, tensions that existed in economies in the pre-World War One period. And this is a lot of uh, the background to this. And I find it quite scary, actually. And, and gestures and things that people can do can spiral out of control. Um, and they're, they're not shy at testing this, you know. So, yeah, not, um, not a good place to be. Well, you also, we've got some more kind of geopolitical talk with um, the visit of the Iranian ambassador the Iranian ambassador meeting you had on Monday <laughs> yeah Maybe. I mean I'm on the delegation uh, for Iran and uh, even though it's going on two and a half years um, it was interesting that the first time the ambassador was invited in uh, was this week mm-hmm. uh, which is really surprising right? but anyway um, Hussein uh, Yani uh, came in a very impressive figure, uh, spoke so well, and uh, he was, you know, he was queer, quizzed on a whole number of issues in relation to Iran. Obviously, the most uh, frequent question uh, was about the JCPOA, which was uh, th- that uh, agreement that uh, was signed in 2015, where the Europeans, the Americans, and Iran signed up to this agreement where uh, Iran would not develop uh, armoured nuclear power and that uh, 
the Americans and the Europeans would lift sanctions, right? But anyway, that fell apart when Trump pulled out of it. Um, Obama had signed up to it in 2015, fair play to him. One of the, one of the few good things he did in his time of office. And um, But it was obviously very disappointing when Trump pulled out of it. And the Europeans had promised to, f- to fight back against that. They promised to help the Iranians uh, do business with European companies. And the, the Europeans said they would actually... Uh, create a financial facility that would support uh, European companies that had the courage to deal with Iran uh, who happened to get censured by the Americans and um, there was a, a, a thing called a barring statute uh, brought in um, which would protect these companies but it didn't happen Europeans didn't put their money where their mouth was and uh, <clears throat> these sanctions that the Americans were imposing um, remained just as strong in Europe because the European Union refused to challenge what the Americans were doing and European companies were scared to do business with Iran in case they faced financial sanctions and penalties from the Americans who uh, dominate the world financial system in a number of different ways, obviously mainly through uh, the supremacy of the dollar still as the world's number one currency, uh, but in other, a number of other ways as well. But anyway, Hussein uh, was he was very smart, very intelligent, very articulate. He dealt very well with all the questions put to him. So apart from the JCPOA, he was queried a lot on <coughs> Afghanistan because... People might find it strange that um, the number of Afghan refugees in Iran, according to a UN spokesperson who came before the Foreign Affairs Committee six weeks ago, is at 3.6 million. 3.6 million Afghan refugees in Iran. And they're not locked up in camps. Uh, They are availing of schooling, of healthcare, and some of them are getting into, into work situation. But it's very, very difficult for Iran to cope, especially given that there is European and American sanctions in particular, uh, making life very difficult for them. Now, there is some... Uh, they reckon that 6% of all refugees now are in camps, but it's mostly of new refugees coming across the border since the Taliban took over in August. And according to the Iranians, that there's approximately 4,000 Afghan refugees coming across the border every day. Now, I put it to them as well that uh, the UN human rights people are saying, and the UN human rights people are actually working on the ground at mm-hmm. the border. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Iranian ambassador was was uh, spoke well of them and of the work they were doing. Uh, they... The, it had been put to me by by so a spokesperson f- uh, for them that uh, there was a lot of uh, Afghan refugees being returned back across the border. But the ambassador was adamant that uh, anyone being returned back, uh, that they weren't being forced back, that there were voluntary returns because they were explaining to them that there was a limit to what Iran could do for them. They were starting to put the people, the, the latest people coming in. They were starting to, to go into camps that were a lot, a lot, most of the time UN monitored, so the conditions wouldn't have been great anyway. Uh, whereas the majority of the refugees of the three point six million have basically been incorporated into Iranian society, but the new influx that is just. Uh, 
it's just too much for Iran to mm-hmm. to to deal with, and uh, they were obviously grateful for the help of the UN. Um, but it's a massive, massive challenge, and there is no help from Europe for them. But another t- another point he made, and I think people should keep it in mind, he said, "You know what's going on in Afghanistan. You're refusing to allow monies belong to the government to go back because it's the Taliban in power." Well, he said, not only should that money be released, he said, but um, you're going to have to give an awful lot of help Mm. to keep Afghans alive this winter. He says they're heading into a real cold spell. He says it will be one of the world's worst ever humanitarian crises, he said, unless there's strong action from the international community. He said no one should turn a blind eye to this. They are in a very difficult place. The people are going to suffer terribly unless they're helped. And Europe and the Americans, well, I suppose we've no control over the Americans, but we will be appealing to the Europeans to just ignore the fact that the Taliban are actually in government. Uh, they're in government, that's the reality. Uh, we mightn't like them, and so we don't, mm-hmm. but they're the government now. And, but we should be caring. We should care about the people, and we need to help them. Yeah, I mean it's absolutely disgraceful that they can't access their own money. And like those who say, "Oh well, the Taliban are corrupt," I'd be a hundred percent sure that they absolutely are. But the government that was there before were utterly corrupt as well. That absolutely came out with truckloads of money. And if anything, could they be as bad as that? Well, I sincerely doubt it. But in any case, there are one million children at risk of immediate starvation, and this is money belonging to the country. There's no doubt that uh, the people would benefit by that money being released and it is a little bit sickening when you consider well first of all when you consider that at the end of the summer in August and September they were beating each other up here to try and talk about Afghanistan it lasted for about three weeks and the Afghanistan delegation hasn't even met really recently on that it's absolutely shocking that the parliament has just the whole thing is completely off the radar and as Mick says there are people in danger of imminent death through Mm. um, just cold or lack of food as well total starvation has already captured a lot of lives and that's it's it's frightening, you know. The EU said about assisting um, Afghanistan, but assisting Afghanistan's neighbours who've taken the huge influx of refugees that are there. Very few have made their way to Europe because they've been probably the doors been shut in their face well before they get anywhere near here. They keep yeah. them locked up somewhere else. Are in either Pakistan or Iran? I thought yeah. from preparing for this. Yeah, well. terrible. Yeah. So that's where the money has yeah. to yeah. go. I mean, yeah. and Claire, you're saying about that, that there's a million at risk of poverty, right? Children of starvation. Children. I mean, and uh, if you listen to the Iran ambassador this week, uh, the numbers are even more horrific. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's all very well for the European Union to say that it cares about human rights and it cares about people. Well, I tell you what now, we helped to destroy that place for 20 years and uh, we owe it to the people of Afghanistan to help them now. Mm-hmm. Now, another issue that we touched on with the Iranian ambassador was Yemen. Uh, because a number of times recently, both myself and Claire have been challenged on the fact that we've been highlighting the fact that there's a genocide taking place in Yemen uh, by the Saudis and the UAE in particular, with the support of the US and European member states, in particular the UK and France and others. 
And the European Union doesn't want to talk about what's happening in Yemen, where there's millions starving, mm. millions. And we don't want to talk about it. And the Iranian ambassador pointed out, he says, how many UN resolutions, he says, has there been on Yemen, he said, in the last, since March 2015, when, when the UN and the Americans gave the Saudis and the UAE to go ahead and start bombing the place back into the Stone Age. The UN are partly responsible, and as well as the Americans, mm -hmm. and as well as the Europeans who, who, who followed in and support very quickly. But there is just... And he says, compare that, he says, with the number of resolutions they've had in the, in the UN, he said, on Syria. Compare the two of them, he said. And compare what's happened in the two countries. He says, it's very stark, he says, and it makes one wonder about the UN. Mm -hmm. And it was a very strong point. But I put it to him, I said, uh, because I, I, was, I, was start, I started off by saying that myself and Claire are often criticised for, for highlighting the fact that the Saudis and the UAE are engaging in genocide in Yemen. And, and when people are saying, oh, but you're saying nothing about Iran who are arming the Houthis. I said to the Iranian ambassador, are you arming the Houthis? And he says, no. He says, how could we? He said, he says, uh, the Americans and the Saudis and the Europeans have a blockade on the place. He says they control all the waters, they control the airspace. Houthis have no airplanes. The only ones with airplanes are, are the Saudis and UAE and, and the Western support. They're the only ones uh, with airplanes. They're the only ones that's ever dropped a bomb. The Houthis haven't dropped a bomb in the place yet because they don't have any airplanes. And he said, he says, we're not, no, he says. Uh, but he says, you know what we did do, he said. He says, early in the conflict, we came up with a four-point peace plan as to how we end this terrible conflict. And he says, it was blown out of the water by the Saudis and the UAE and their Western supporters because they said, you know, now we'll win this in a couple of months. No peace plan. It was thrown out. And uh, look, at, as long as the European Union refuses to acknowledge the truth about what's happening in Yemen, as long as they continue to support what Israel are doing to the Palestinians, as long as they are inconsistent on these policies worldwide, they have no credibility. Mm. They don't even have credibility in the, in their, amongst their own member states. I mean, we've had a lot of discussions this week on rule of law, the favourite buzzword of everybody. And we had a big session this morning of the, uh, in conjunction with the national parliaments uh, across many member states. And there was nobody there from Ireland when I was there, but a load of countries were represented. But one of the catch cries was from Poland and Hungary, kind of, you're only picking on us kind of thing, you know. But the fact of the matter is that because of the manner in which the Commission have dealt with this issue, there's a certain legitimacy to that point. Now, we would say that they haven't dealt with Poland and Hungary strong enough, but it's also true to say there's a whole load of other countries, France, Spain, Bulgaria and so on, where huge abuses of rule of law are taking place and absolutely nothing has been done on that. But it always makes me laugh that we're absolutely brilliant at lecturing everybody outside the EU about what they're doing and what they're not doing. Uh, and we, you know, we've no credibility and there isn't even credibility amongst member states now because of the income consistencies of the position. Mm -hmm. Which brings us tidily along to our EU tour. Yay. We're ready to resume to Greece, a, company, a country <coughs> with some 
problems of its own. We're going to get to those. First of all, we'll start off with the, maybe going into Greece and the European Parliament, as we've done in the past. What yeah. Do, what do you think, Mick? I mean, I think the Greeks feature. Yeah. You'd know they were here for sure, which is not the case with some of them. Mm-hmm. Um they're kind of, I suppose, because of their recent history, which was very much linked with our own after the banking crisis, being absolutely shafted by the EU establishment and being made to uh, pay the through vicious, vicious austerity that those scars run very deep. And like Ireland and Portugal and so on, you know, austerity is a word which... Greek people understand so they very much feel that Uh, they were one of the poorest countries in the EU when they joined many years ago I can't remember 1981 I think 1981 so they were early joiners Um, and their political representation in the parliament so there's there's six of them in our group uh, from Syriza which Irish people would have heard of Um, they were the ones who were in government around the time of the banking crisis didn't do great out of that. Now, to be honest, they could have handled it a bit better. But um, the team were pretty nice, aren't they? They're kind of, yeah, they're not hugely yeah, radical, but in the group, they... they yeah, no, they are, yeah. And, um, no, we, I mean, we work well with them. No, they're not left-wing, but um, we, find <laughs> them, we find them decent, you know? Yeah. and um, I'd say they do disagree on that. Yeah. <laughs> I said yeah. I'd say they disagree on that. Well, uh, after the sellout. um yeah. Will we go through that actually? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, listen. I mean, it was, it was scary. Like, I mean, it was like as if there was a gun put at our head. Mm-hmm. Well, and there was effectively. Yeah. You know? uh, they had to bail out the banks or else. Yeah. And um, similar position to Ireland, except they had a left-wing government at the time. Yeah, there was opposition yeah. uh, in Greece. Yeah. To they knew that bailing out these banks and selling off their assets to pay for it, selling the country to foreigners in order to pay for it, they knew it was madness. Yeah. But uh, we didn't get to that space. Uh, we, we've we've uh, we've done an awful lot of selling of the country as well, uh, mostly to U.S. investment funds, uh, sometimes better known as vulture funds. Not all of them were vulture funds, uh, but a lot of them were. Uh, but the Greeks were adamant that this was madness yeah. and that we shouldn't do this. But they ended up having no choice. And they were, um, it was like they were looking down the barrel of a gun. And uh, it's had a, a dramatic effect. And, and it, it's interesting that uh, the level of trust in the European Union is lower in Greece than any other of the 27 member states. And mm. it's hardly surprising. Yeah. I mean, there's a really good film on it. I can't remember on about which Yarafakis produced. I think it's the, the adults in the room or something or leave the, the adults the outside book. their room or something. Yeah, but just about the whole pressure that they were put under. And we have to remember back, and of course we do like that the... People were out on the streets. They were incredibly active. They were behind their their government, but they basically it was bottled in the end, and the, the scars run deep. But I mean, it was difficult for a small country like that. But it's interesting that those movements which emerged, like Syriza in Greece, which kind of an amalgam of all sorts of different radical groups, Podemos in 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 um, Spain at the same time, the Five Star Movement in Italy, they all kind of came out. But they all kind of subsequently floundered then, you know. Uh, I suppose Syriza has lasted a little bit better. Um, They seem to be made up of a cross-section of sort of, you know, there's actors and, you know, 
sort of celebrity journalists are part of their ticket here, former models and ministers, you know, so they're kind of and very wealthy business families from Greece who would be representatives of Syriza. And like we say, like they, they, they do as parliamentarians here working on files, they're pretty diligent and decent, but they're not particularly radical. There are two members of the Greek Communist Party who were in the left group previously, but who left for... And they because are Cere- left wing. Because Theresa <laughs> were in it. Um, and, and they are, they're, they're pretty good and they do they uh, contribute. Yeah. They're really serious guys and they've been involved recently in Greece. Costas was telling me uh, about organising some serious uh, strikes in, of dock workers and so on to defend wages and stuff against the backdrop of the pandemic and they've been very successful in uh, those strikes. So it's nice to see the Greek working class, I suppose, rediscovering its militancy. Uh, particularly after the the beating that they were given by the European Union establishment in general and Germany in particular and countries like Ireland who were similar victims, not giving them any help at all other than rubbing their face in and kind of going, oh, well, at least we cut our own heads off. Like, you know, you know, you were forced to do years, but like we just volunteered our head, you know. Little boys and girls. Yeah, because we're good. Like, you know, it's pathetic. I've always been, been struck by the statistics on... Uh, on GDP and the, the economy uh, as to the makeup of it, right? And with all the countries we've done so far, I've been really shocked at how low agriculture is as a part of GDP, given that uh, yeah. approximately a third of all the yeah. money goes into agriculture. But the truth be told, we've kind of um, we've kind of shipped it off to, to, to other countries. Like, I mean, most of the food we eat is grown somewhere else. It's grown outside of Europe. It's grown in the global south where they earn less than five Euro, $5 a day for their work. So it's good and cheap. But it's interesting that Greece is still at 3.7% of GDP, agricultural sector. That's the highest I've seen so far of all the countries we've done. And seemingly it used to be much, much higher in Greece, but mm. obviously it's been undermined with uh, world trade agreements that uh, are forcing farmers out of existence, uh, not just in Greece, but all across Europe. But uh, still, Greece is the, the, the highest so far. Now, tourism is obviously, people won't be surprised to hear that tourism is a huge part of uh, the Greek economy. Um I mean, an awful lot of people go to Greece from Ireland even on the holidays. Mm. It's a it's a great destination by all accounts. Now I never went on a holiday there, there myself, but I have been there to watch football twice. Uh, so I have been there. I was never there until I went um, a couple of weeks ago, which we featured on the podcast to visit some uh, asylum seekers who were in prison on one of the islands and and talk with some of the lawyers and that represent them. And I have to say, it's obviously geographically stunning. And that was October and the weather was gorgeous. Um, So, yeah, and beautiful food. People would obviously know Greek food, feta cheese, nice wines, olives, obviously. Yeah, Yeah, really good, fresh salads and stuff. So Mm. they're pretty good and it's a nice healthy kind of a an outdoor lifestyle i mean they do have and they have been um, met with waves of uh, asylum seekers land in Greece. Actually, the Albanians sort of, for obvious re- blend in very well. So there'll be a lot of Albanians who seamlessly sort of assimilate into Greek society. But there's been huge <coughs> pressure with migration, and Greece has been responsible for serious violations of fundamental rights with European money 
going to fund the Greek Coast Guard who've been involved in illegal pushbacks of migrants back to Turkey because the island I was on was just four miles between Turkey and Greece and they just pushed the, the migrants uh, back to Turkey or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a mixed place and they're quite a right-wing government now who are really astute. They're a bit like the Bulgarians. It must be something to do with that part of Europe. They're pretty cute. They play the game with the European Union. They talk one thing, which I suppose they're just doing what the European Union does in reverse. So they pretend like that they're dealing with these reforms. Now, but the reforms are actually undermining so-called democratic democracy and, and accountability and transparency. But they do it in a way in which they pretend they're doing it for transparency. So in, in, in Bulgaria, they brought in constitutional changes, which actually made the situation worse. And the European Commission said, oh, that's great. You're dealing with the constitution rather than the substance of the, the Greeks are pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. And there's a real undermining of um, rule of law stuff there, but it never gets reached on the, on the radar. Well, just to finish on Greece on football, I mean, you, you always have, kind of have, have to look... To football. You, you have to look at the football dimension of it. And I'll never forget the European Championships in Portugal in 2004. Uh, I went to about 17 games in total. I went to 14 games in 14 days Um at one stage in it, but uh, Greece won it, and it was a mass, probably the biggest surprise in my lifetime of any winner. And to beat Portugal in the final, they were a very well organised side. They weren't pretty, but they were good. They were very solid, um, and uh, you couldn't actually argue with their victory. And it was an amazing achievement. And uh, um, all the Greeks loved their football, and. Uh, I think they enjoy that dramatically. There's a kind of an independence about them. Like you couldn't, the Greeks aren't really like anybody else in the European Union. Sure they're not. I mean, they're like <laughs> the Albanians who are not in it, but they're not really like anybody else. And they're, they're pretty nice. Like, And what is interesting, is you don't have any of them renew that liberal mm-hmm. sort of arrogant brigade. No, nobody in renew from Greece, nobody in the Greens from Greece. So they don't go into that fuzzy politically correct territory really it's more gutsy it's more raw it's more obviously they have had Golden Dawn and one of the MEPs from Greece is in prison um, for obviously uh, assisting murder you know through the the fascist Golden Dawn party Um, doesn't stop and send emails mind you all the time so I'm not really (laughs) sure what sort of a prison that is it's certainly not the prison I went to visit I can tell you where the boys aren't sitting doing emails but this guy does it all the time but um yeah, so they don't have those kind of, you know, they, and, and the S&D, so that middle Labour Party types, which was represented through PASOK, the old social democracy in Greece, is kind of no more either. So it's kind of different in that regard. Um, and one of the good things, I mean, they're saying there's 2,000 islands in it, only 170 of them occupied, wow. which is incredible, like, you know. Yeah, it's very much island-based yeah. and, yeah, yeah, just a different way of life and outlook. Uh, but... I think in you know we kind of rate them. I think we like the Greeks, don't yeah, we? Yeah, no, I like. I, I like think them, really yeah. like yeah. them. I yeah. think they make a different contribution to the union, and they're yeah. a bit more raw and real and gutsy. And uh, yeah, we pretty much like yeah. them. So yeah. we've given up on the number rating, but Greece overall. Yeah, Are they no. be in the top half of the class anyway? That's <laughs> oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I think we we better wrap up for this week. Um, in Strasbourg next week, so you'll be reunited with indeed Damien. No, he's not oh, no, he's, oh, he's, not, he's not, not coming. coming. Oh, maybe yeah. lovely Bethany will, yeah, will take on the mantle. Well, actually, Oshin was talking about a Christmas special that Oshin and Bethany would do it with us. Yeah. We can get Mick to do a I few carols. I'll tell you what, if, 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 yeah, yeah. if you think that the wax relaxing is bad, you won't have a clue what Oshin is saying. So he's from Cork. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, bye-bye. 
Just love our, our, our whatever uh, goodbye is in Greeks. 